This morning, we're going to be looking at the Good Samaritan. How many have heard of the Good Samaritan? I mean, you, you might not know the story, you know, word for word, but how many of you, hands high, have heard some sense this idea of Good Samaritan? Right? We all, know, and many in this room, know the Good Samaritan. Right? You could probably go anywhere in the country and talk about the Good Samaritan, and somebody, no matter who they are, they're going to know, have some idea of what you're talking about, perhaps even abroad. You could go anywhere and talk about the Good Samaritan. What do we, in our country, what do we have? We have the Good Samaritan Law, right? So there's a real familiarity with the way that this is a cultural icon for us, isn't it? So we know, we know this idea of the Good Samaritan. Well, we'll be looking at that familiar story this morning. If you'll turn with me in Luke 10, 25 through 37, we're going to try to make our way through it. We want to see, first of all, what, what is Jesus doing with this story? What is he seeking to do? We're going to, we're going to try to figure some of that out as we go. And at the end, I, I, my hope is that we'll be able to say something about what he seeks to do to us with the story. I want to see what he's doing with it, and then what is he doing to us? That's where we're, that's where we're headed. So let's begin in verse 25, it's chapter 10 of Luke. Beginning at verse 25, and there, we don't know what the context here. We just Luke just jumps right in in this particular in this particular text. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That is Jesus saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, who is this? He's a lawyer, the scribe, teacher of the law, expert in the law. And Luke, those terms are interchangeable. So that's who our guy is. That's talking to Jesus. What's he doing? He's testing Jesus. Puts him to the test. That's not a good thing. Okay, we should know or think at the outset, that's bad. He's not here to undergird Jesus' mission. He's not a cheerleader cheering Jesus on. In Luke, the scribes, the experts in the law, the teachers of the law, the lawyers, they're there to monitor Christ's faithfulness to the law. They're looking to see what's he doing. Where's he going? That's the first thing. And in Luke, these guys... In part, not wholly, but in part, these guys are the ones that contribute to the rejection of Jesus and his suffering. These aren't good guys. What does Jesus say about them? Or what does Luke tell us that Jesus says about them? Well, they are the object of his cursing and woes. Okay, well, Jesus says, woe to you. That's not good. Um, he accuses them. Why? He, why does he do that? He accuses them of, of loading down the people with burdens that they can't bear. He accuses these guys of holding the keys to the kingdom, not themselves entering in and hindering other people from entering in to the kingdom. Um, they, he, he says of these fellows that uh, they actually affirm the work of their forefathers who killed the prophets. In a sense, he says, you guys help build their tombs. You have no problem with their agenda. So we're supposed to be suspicious. You should already be suspicious of this guy right out from the outset. And Jesus obviously would have known this. And his question, how do I inherit eternal life? What is he asking? He's asking what any other good first century Jew would have asked. The first time we hear of this idea of eternal life is in Daniel 12, I think, chapter or verse 2. That's looking forward to this life of the age to come. What is that? What is Israel looking for in that? They're looking forward to that time when 
Yahweh will put down all their enemies. Rome. The Romans. He's going to put down all of our enemies. He's going to right all the wrongs. He'll vindicate his people and bring in this earthly abundance and bliss. That's what they were looking forward to. That's this idea of eternal life. So this lawyer is asking Jesus to test him. How am I going to inherit this eternal life? He's asking, in essence, how do I make sure that I'm on the side of the righteous and not the wicked at the day of judgment? How do I ensure that I will be among those whom Yahweh vindicates? Okay. Question that any first century Jew would have been asking at that point. So what does Jesus say? Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He wants to extract from this fellow his interpretation. What do you think the law is saying about this? Perhaps Jesus is deflecting the question a bit here. But in verse 27, the lawyer says, all right, I've been waiting for this. Here's my shot. Here's I've got the answer. And perhaps he even knew that this was the answer that Jesus would be looking for. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer, expert in the law, has taken Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19. Put these things together. Jesus himself put these texts together. When asked, what is the greatest law? Jesus, love God, love your neighbor. Gives the right answer. And in a sense, the answer that Deuteronomy is this, the main thrust of Deuteronomy, or the first half of Deuteronomy anyway, is this idea of inner consecration. So to the answer, how do I know that I will inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what do you think? The law says, the law says this, remain faithful to Yahweh, remain loyal to him, love him with all your heart, carry out his statutes, which incidentally include the sacrifices. Apparently is, is given an answer from the law. What is Jesus' response? Don't look at your text. It's been a long time since you've read this text. What is Jesus' answer going to be to the answer that the lawyer has given him? Verse 28. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Is anybody getting a tick? Is that confusing? Did we, we, did we expect that answer to come from Jesus? I mean, he gave a Levitical answer. Do this and live. That's Leviticus. And so did, we ex, did you expect something else from Jesus? Didn't you kind of expect him to talk about how he had come to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law? And you expected him to say something more like Paul, right? Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by him. In verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Did we, did you expect Jesus to say something like that? Hey! I've come to redeem you from that stuff. But he doesn't say that. So we're left with the question, what is Jesus doing? Well, here is how I'm going to come at that. If we could back up, just back way up, and think about the law in terms of its redemptive historical function, or at least one of them. right? And by redemptive historical, I just simply mean this. As God enters into history... As he rolls through history, fulfilling his plans to redeem for himself a people, 
What, is, what, 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 what place does the law have there? Well, from that perspective, I would say this, that whole period of the law. Now, don't just think Ten Commandments here. Okay? When we're talking about the law, we're talking about a whole period, the Mosaic epoch or epoch. What is that? that? From the time that God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai all the way up to Jesus, you got this whole period right? that we might call the law. I'm going to come at it from this direction, from a redemptive historical standpoint. The law, at least one of its functions, is a symbolic kind of typical function. A symbolic typical function. Now everybody is going, okay, now you've lost me. I don't think, it's, I don't think I've lost you. Just listen. Listen to this, okay? What do I mean by symbolic? All I mean is this, is that there is this representative nature that that whole period has. It's teaching something. What is it teaching? And if some of you have been to the Institute on Wednesday night, you've heard this before. One of the, one of the big lessons that the law is teaching is that faithfulness precedes blessedness. Faithfulness precedes blessing. That's one of the big picture functions of the law, to teach that lesson. Um, and what, what, what did they receive? Now, why, and why would I say it's typical or it's, or it's symbolic? What, uh, what tells me that? One of the things that tells me that is, is think about what they got. If they obeyed the law, what they get? Kids, crops, cattle, and comfort. You like that? Kids, crops, cattle, comfort, right? That's what they get in the land. Do you notice that's all this that's earthly, temporal, in space and time stuff right there? That's what they're getting. Kids, crops, cattle, and, and, and comfort. That's what they're promised. What happens if they don't obey? They get carried into exile. But who gets carried into exile? Just the bad Israelites? No. The faithful ones got carried away too. So we want you to see that, at least certainly in this, the, the, what's running through all of this also is this, this idea of God acting graciously and mercifully towards a people. That's not X'd out here. But one of the layers of the law, one of the things that's going on is this teaching, this general idea. Faithfulness comes before blessing. Not necessarily this at the end when 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 Jesus is on his throne and he says, "Okay, you know, you people, you come into my kingdom and you people, you don't get to come in. You go to hell. That's that eschatological judgment. We might. That's the big word for it. There's not a one to one correspondence between those two things. Because, again, remember, the faithful got carried off, too, and they got just earthly blessings. So what I want you to see is there's a symbolic nature to this law going on here. That's the first thing. All right. Everybody track with that. The second thing is it's typical. What is the law teaching? As one theologian says, it's a, what, how, is, how is Israel and how it dealt with the law? How is it one big lesson book for everybody to learn from? Paul said it like this. The law, that whole period, is a tutor leading us to Jesus. And one of the ways is it's a tutor is by painting for us that picture of faithfulness preceding blessing. How is it typical? How is it pointing to something else? We're supposed to recognize what Jesus was doing when we recognize. Jesus was the one who was faithful. Jesus was the one who showed faithfulness to the covenant Lord and secured blessing. Not the temporal, earthly blessing of the Israelites, 
but eternal blessing. And I'm, that is to be read. I'm thinking eternal kingdom, new heavens, new earth, no more corruptibility. Everybody rallied around uh, a, a God in that period. Do you, do you track with that? So it's typical. It's, we're supposed to get that. Oh, this faithfulness leading to blessing. Jesus did that. Oh, okay. I see. That's the way it's to be read. Here's what I'm saying. I think that Jesus leaves intact the law as it's functioning in that redemptive historical way. He's not, he's, hear, hear me here, he's not turning that apple cart over yet. He's not blowing up that category quite yet. Does that make sense? Jesus doesn't have to turn over all the apple carts all at one time. But I will say this. He is coming at this lawyer from another angle. He is prepared to blow up categories for this lawyer. He is seeking to turn over an apple cart or two that this lawyer has. How does he do that? Look at verses 29 through 37. And here's where we get into the juicy part of the story. Jesus, or rather the lawyer asked Jesus in verse 29... But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? What's he doing? Is he trying to cut corners? The law instructed the Jew that his neighbor was his brother, his fellow Jew. And it also included the resident alien or foreigner that joined them, or as one commentator puts it, who embrace the covenant with Yahweh. He seeks to know, all right, what are the clear boundaries then? And perhaps this is where the real test is. Okay, so what are the boundaries, Jesus? Who's my neighbor? What are you going to say about that? And look at Leviticus 19. Let's go back there and you can listen to this in verses 17 and 18. You shall not you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. In verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's where we're getting. Oh, my neighbor is my fellow Jew, my Israelite. But verse 33 when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall, not do, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat your stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's interesting that the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, translates the stranger that sojourns with you, the stranger there, as proselyte. Understanding it as someone who has become part of the people. They've joined the covenant people in some sense. And it, it may have been quite right that a Jew would not have seen, it would have been impossible for them to see their, the Romans as their neighbors. Are you kidding me? So he wants to know, what are the categories? How is Jesus going to answer? He's going to tell him a story. Starting in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Know what Jesus has already done. He's already subverted the question that the lawyer has asked him. He's already undercut him. How? What was the lawyer wanting to know? Give me categories. What categories are you going to choose, Jesus? Where are you going to draw the boundary markers, Jesus? What does Jesus do right at the outset? He says, a man. He has no clothes on. He's probably not that pretty to look at because he's half dead. Here's the point. You can't tell who he is. 
There's no marker. He's already subverted this guy's question right at the outset. Right. He's just a man, nondescript, unidentifiable man. So already the lawyer is frustrated. And I answering my question. And Jesus continues. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Why do they pass by? Well, speculations abound on this. Some commentators say that they passed by because they didn't want to be defiled. These guys were on a road. They were coming from Jerusalem, which means that they were serving in the temple. They were leaving. Perhaps they didn't want to be defiled. Perhaps um, they bought, again, this idea that we help our fellow Jews and those who are proselytes, those who have joined us. We don't help sinners. There, there's, there's another possible speculation. Some would say they just appeared. They didn't want to get robbed either. So they kept on going. Another possibility is that um, it's more social and cultural climate. These guys have a high status in the community because of their connection with the temple. Questions of clean and unclean people, questions of who's in, who's out. Those are all questions that revolve around the temple. These guys are connected to that and their connection with this world commends an exemplary status to them by their mere birth. They get connected with that reality because they're priests. They're born into it. So you have this social, socio-cultural kind of possibility that maybe Jesus is, this is why those guys passed by. Anything that they did was self-evidently okay because this is who they were. They were connected with the temple. Right? But here's, here's, here's the issue. Jesus simply gives no motive. He doesn't give a motive. He makes no direct characterization of why these guys didn't help. Whatever the motive was, he left the opinion that the lawyer may have held intact. Maybe this is the genius of Jesus' way of telling the story. He leaves whatever categories, whatever assumptions and presuppositions the lawyer has. He doesn't draw those out. He leaves them there. In the lawyer's mind, no doubt, but he leaves them there. Leaves them there. And in some ways, I think drawing this lawyer in with everything with, with bags fully loaded that he might have, ready to hear the punchline. And now the climax of the story. In verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to, and took care of him. And the next day... He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. A Samaritan. Okay, insert comment here. The Jews hated Samaritans. These guys were the guys that rejected the scriptures after uh, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. Right. These guys are the guys that rejected any understanding of God's redemptive purposes that revolved around Jerusalem, where the temple was. They hated them. They were considered outcasts to eat with a Samaritan was like eating pork for a Jew. They were unclean. They were to be avoided at all costs. That's who these guys were. And note again, the subtle way that Jesus twists the guy that is worthless 
the guy that is inferior, the one that deserves absolutely no respect. Jesus makes him the hero. The lawyer perhaps would have been expecting this. Okay, priest, Levite, Israelite layperson. That would have been the general triple, triple threat that, that, uh, that would have gone on with these stories. The priest, the Levite, the Israelite layperson. Does Jesus do that? No way. He takes the very one that they hate and makes him the third party. Something absolutely unexpected. This is who Jesus makes the hero. And the Samaritan follows the same path. The Levite and the priest, they come, they see, and they pass by. The Samaritan, he comes, he sees, and he shows compassion. Compassion is used 12 times. Three times it's used in a parable. The prodigal son, this one, and the one about the master who forgives the debtors. Remember, one debtor is forgiven, and then he doesn't forgive the other guy. That's the rest of the times, the other nine times, the word is used of Jesus. He's healing, he's feeding, and he raises somebody from the dead. Surely, this would have been running in Jesus' mind when he's telling this story about compassion. He would have had in mind the compassion Israel was to show that would be reflective of the way their God acted. He bound him. He poured oil on him. Took him to an inn. Gave a lot of money. And then left his credit card. Who does that? To people that probably can't be trusted. Doesn't happen. What had he done? In showing compassion, compassion, the Samaritan had shown covenantal, the covenantal faithfulness of God who sees and responds with salvific care. And again, amazingly, Jesus shows up, the scholar, the Jewish scholar. He, in effect, says, this is true Israel. And this would have been offensive. The picture that you should have of the lawyer at this point is this. Shaking with anger. You have replaced the people of Yahweh, Israel, with this dog. And now you suggest that the dog acts as Israel was to act. It's unheard of. And Jesus draws this out more explicitly in verse 36 and 37 with a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Do you notice what Jesus does there? He flip-flops things. What was, the, what was the question that the lawyer asked? Who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to show love to? Jesus' answer to the question is, who are you supposed to show love to? I mean, or, or what kind of person are you supposed to be? Who's the one that gave the love? He didn't answer the question, who is the one that gets to receive the love? He answered the question, who is the one that shows the love? Jesus subtly switches the emphasis there. And the lawyer could not even bring himself to say Samaritan. It's like he's gritting his teeth. Who is it that was the one that was showed, showed himself to be the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. I'm sorry, excuse me. The one who showed mercy. And then Jesus says something completely outrageous. Go and do likewise. You go and act like the dog. 
And we might say that at that point, we're way past, we're way past us an awkward social moment, right? <laughs> this, is, this is one of those times when you're, you're, you're in the background going, no, 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 Jesus, no, no. You don't, this is, this is one of the times you're thinking, okay, I, I don't want to be around Jesus because he just makes everybody mad. <laughs> right? This is what he's doing. So let me summarize. Jesus, by telling this story, has rewritten the way things are supposed to go. Is he not? He destabilizes, even threatens, this lawyer's understanding of reality. Three ways. He takes away the ability to isolate those who receive love and those who don't. Rips it right out from under him. Couldn't tell who the man was. Remember that. Jesus turns the lawyer's question around by focusing his attention on the kind of action the lawyer should take. The kind of character he should be. And thirdly, Jesus makes the insiders outsiders and the outsiders insiders. You would have expected that the lawyers and the, or excuse me, the Levite and the priest would have been the insiders. But no, they seem to be the ones on the outside. It's the one that you would think that you would not think is on the inside. Actually, the one that's on the outside that actually lives what it means to be a faithful covenant servant. Those are the things that Jesus has done. He's redefined Jewish expectation. But on whose authority? On his authority as the Son of Man. Now, remember our pastor, Jeff, last week, he talked about structure of a passage telling you something. The structure of the passage here tells you something big. Coming before this, and I loved this. This was really interesting to see. Coming before this was the story of the 72 who get sent out, right? What's at stake in the message of the 72 that get sent out? Those who hear them, hear Jesus. And that's not the word. Akuo is not just let me listen. It also infers obedience. Those who hear, those obey what the 72 are saying. They're hearing and obeying Jesus and thus hearing and obeying the one who sent Jesus. To not hear them is to reject Jesus and thus reject the one who sent him. That's what's at stake in their message. These 72, they, they've seen things, Jesus says, and heard things that, the, that others longed to hear. They responded, they listened, they heard, and their, their, their names are written in the book of heaven. What happens on the other side of our text? What story comes just after this text? Mary and Martha. That's a familiar story to many of you. What's, what's Martha doing? She's making dinner, doing doing. Setting the table and she gets angry because Mary is not helping her out. And what does what does Luke say? Mary was sitting at Jesus feet and she heard same word, his word. And what was Jesus response? I will not rebuke her. She has chosen the good thing. What's at stake here? Hearing, obeying Jesus right in the middle of those two things. What's happening? Jesus is coming head on with a lawyer. And what is he doing? Note the structure. When he, when he asked him, well, how do we inherit eternal life? What does the law say? Good. Live and do it. Who's my neighbor? What does Jesus do? Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And after Jesus, by his story, has redefined, rewritten reality, then Jesus says, do what I said. He, in essence, asks this lawyer, this Jewish scholar, will you listen to me? Will you hear from me? I have, I, have, I have turned the apple cart over. 
identification with the people of God, who they are, that all revolves around me now. Will you listen to me? That's what Jesus is doing. Quickly, two points I want to tie this in for us. First, by linking this message up with what our pastor has been talking about the last three weeks. If you haven't been with us, he's been working through Matthew 16. That's right, 16, right? And he's been talking about what it means to be the church. We're in a new building. We're revisiting some of these issues about what it means to be the church. Right? And what our pastors tried to lay out is that Jesus is the center. We are a people rallied around Jesus. We come to hear from Jesus. What do we come to hear from Jesus about his work, what he has done for us, and how what he has done for us changes us? I've not left that topic. What I'm suggesting here with this text is we, as those people who come and rally around Jesus, our Savior, hear from Jesus the same question. Will you listen to me? Will you obey me? This text is all about what we might call discipleship. Will you follow Christ? That, I think, is the question. And Jesus here, he's locked arm in arm with the foreigner, with the enemy, with the marginalized. He's, he is quite in line with the program that he has been set out on ever since the beginning of Luke. Luke 4, 16 through 30 is kind of programmatic for the rest of Jesus' ministry. I'm going to read two verses to you. It says this, verse 18 of chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I think what Jesus is calling on us to do is to follow him in his mission. Will you listen to me? Not too long ago, or well, maybe it was some time ago, I was watching a documentary on the civil rights movement. And many of you may have seen this, but there's this scene where you have this line of black students faced with this line of white sheriffs, and the, clo- the, 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 the camera is trained on this dialogue going on between one of the black students and one of the the sheriffs. And the black student says to the sheriff, I will pray for you. The sheriff says to him, I don't believe your prayers get above your head. It's not in our too distant past. There were outsiders and there were insiders. I was at a park not too long ago. And uh, watching the people come in and out. And you know what I caught myself doing? I caught myself um, sizing everybody up, right? You know, don't let the bow tie fool you, okay? I'm poor. Keep that in mind. I'm po-o-r, all right? That's the way I spell it. You'll get that after lunch. Um, I'm looking at people, sizing them up. And you know what I'm thinking? They don't look very refined. I don't know. I don't know if I, I would really rather not mess with them. They don't look at her teeth. Look at the way she's dressed. Look at the way he's dressed. 
Thanks, son. Hi, how are you? Move away quickly. That's what's going through my mind. Right? I'm thinking, what kind of questions are running through my mind? Are they like me socially? Are they like me ethnically? Are they like me economically? Are they like me intellectually? These are all questions telling me where I think I find solidarity with other people. And that is a problem, all right? Because the question that I ought to be asking myself when those are my questions is this. How on earth could you possibly think you are on the same mission that Jesus is on? Perhaps at an age where someone can... uh, uh, you know, rob a company or beat their children, and we still say, but they're good people. Perhaps that works, but in Jesus' world, that does not work. The answer to the question, how could I possibly think, is you cannot. You can't. So you might say, what question should be running through my mind? This is the question that should be running through your mind. When you look at those people, when, you, when you're in the drive-thru at McDonald's and the guy drives through with the music banging and the spinners on his Cadillac, the first thought is not. The first thought is not. I don't want to be with you. The first thought is, could they be my brother? Could she be my sister? Would these be people that God would make part of his covenant people? That's the question that I should be asking. Does that make sense? Our, uh, in our book of church order, the work of the deacon reads like this. This office is one of sympathy and service after the example of Jesus. We'll come back to that. It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to anyone who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of of liberality in the members of the church to devise effective uh, methods of collecting the gifts of the people and to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. That's the task of the deacon. But they're not there to do it by themselves. They cultivate in the church a people who reflect that same job description, I think. So I guess the question is, who do you choose to love? To show compassion to. Why do you choose to love and show compassion to those that you do? How far does does this compassion and this love reach? Jesus throws open the possibilities. They are as far-ranging and as wide as your imagination can carry you. I think that's what Christ is calling us to. And the last point is this. You may have noticed that this sermon is what might be called a fruit sermon. Right. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know, root and fruit. Right. The in the land of Hatonia, the the universal sign for for distinction and separation is this. Right. Everybody know. Right. Distinct, but not separate. Distinct, but not root and fruit. Distinct, but not separate. This is a fruit sermon, I have to tell you. And I know that. 
This is all about, as the title says, hearing Jesus and understanding the kind of people he expects us to be. Right. So where is the root? Let me let me drive this in to the root. What kind of people become a people of compassion? People who have received compassion. Jesus expects us to be a people of compassion because we've experienced compassion. And one, two verses that I think capture this quite succinctly is Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. On either side of that is imitation of God and imitation of Jesus. But when it says imitate God as children of God, that's not just a simple father-son analogy. Remember, Ephesians 1, the same letter says this. By the, by the spilt blood of Jesus, you've been adopted as sons and daughters. You have been made part of his family. And so what we have in, this, in that verse, that short verse, is both a ground and a pattern. Because of Christ's work for us. We take confidence in what he has done. He has been faithful and secured blessing. And because of that, we have been united to him and made one of his people. And now those who have experienced that compassion now show a self-sacrifice and a self-denial that exemplifies our covenant Lord and our Redeemer. So, I guess I, the question is simple. What kind of people are we going to be? We're in a new building. This is good. It's real easy, though, to get caught up in the institutionalization, right? This is the kind of people we are to be. May God stir our hearts to do it. Pray with me. Father, we do pray that in your goodness and your faithfulness to your call, that you would make our love, the love of those gathered here as your people, abound more and more. And we pray that it would abound with knowledge and with discernment so that we would approve of what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless at your coming, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through you. We pray all these things to the glory and the praise of our God. Amen.